you would, please take your Bibles and join me as I turn to Galatians, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. As we turn to God's Word, let's once again go to Him in prayer, asking for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have Your Word before us, that You have made it possible to read your thoughts in our own language. We thank you, Father, for preserving your word perfect and without error. Father, we want these to be more than just words printed on a page, but words that are driven into the deep recesses of our heart. And so, Father, would you be pleased to drive our words, your words, into our life by your Holy Spirit, that we would recognize indeed that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Be with us now, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the next uh, few minutes here are going to sound like a repeat in one way uh, from the past two weeks, because as we get going in Galatians, we need to set the stage these first few weeks. Here we are in our series, uh, the third installment in the Gospel According to the Bible, an exposition of the letter to the Galatians. Remember again how Mark's Gospel started with Jesus' words that summarized the start of his public ministry. He said, repent and believe in the gospel. Now Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he came to do, that is the gospel, cannot be separated. In other words, you can't have Jesus without the gospel and you can't have the gospel without Jesus. Now it's no surprise that since we saw that there's much ignorance and confusion when it comes to the person and work of Jesus, there is also much ignorance and confusion when it comes to the gospel, the biblical gospel. Biblical meaning the true and authoritative account of the gospel. Now children, I need your help here. What are, the Old Testament promises what? Promises made. And the New Testament is what? Promise is kept. And you remember when we looked at Mark's gospel, we saw that the Old Testament is Jesus predicted. And the, new, and, and the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were, was Jesus revealed. And then the letters, or Acts, was uh, Jesus preached. And the letters was Jesus explained. And the uh, revelation was Jesus expected. So here we had Jesus revealed in the gospels. And Paul and some of the other apostles are now going to explain Jesus through the letters to the churches. Now in our series, we're, by God's grace, going to address this ignorance and confusion when it comes to the gospel. And by God's kindness, our ignorance is going to be lessened and our confusion is going to be reduced. But in the midst of ignorance and confusion that even we have, and that we will see that the Galatians had in the first century. Galatians will provide clarity on the gospel. Remember the theme of Galatians. If Ephesians is grace, 
and rightly so, then Ephesians, or excuse me, Galatians is faith. More specifically, justification by faith. Everyone turn with me again to chapter 2, verse 16. This is where we find the, the central thematic verse in the entire letter. Paul writes, yet we know that a person is justified, excuse me, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Not once, not twice, but three times in that one verse is justification by faith in Jesus Christ. This is rightly considered to be the Magna Carta of the Protestant Reformation. Latin Magna Carta, the great charter of the liberties. And indeed, as we study Galatians, we will see that Galatians is indeed a great charter of liberties, our fundamental guarantee of rights and privileges as Christians. Martin Luther, the German reformer early in the 16th century, slowly but unmistakably discovered that Christianity was not about what he had to do for God, but rather what God had done for him in Jesus Christ. And of Galatians, he wrote this, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. And again, in his preface to his well-known commentary on this book, Luther says words to the effect this, for there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. And later in that same commentary, when reflecting back on the overall theme of Galatians, would say this, we should know this article, the gospel, justification by faith, well, teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. Now we will see running throughout Galatians the biblical affirmation about salvation that marked the Protestant Reformation, that being justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, and all for the glory of God alone. Remember that in Galatians, Paul is defending the gospel, and in order to do that, he also has to defend himself, as we will see today. There are six chapters and 149 verses. There's an opening greeting in the first five verses, and then, as we saw last week, a denunciation. A denunciation. Galatians can be divided up really in three ways. Autobiography, theology, and ethics. Not exclusively, but primarily the first two chapters are autobiography. It's Paul's personal defense of his gospel ministry, his apostleship. And then chapters 3 and 4 are theology, where Paul presents a theological defense of the gospel message, that being justification by faith. And the last two chapters are his practical application of the gospel message to the lives of believers. It's ethics. In other words, what God has done, as we will see in these first two chapters, teaches us what we should believe 
in these middle two chapters and then how we should live the last two chapters. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at verses one through five, the opening statement of the defense of the gospel. And we saw there presented in general terms what would be explored in much more detail throughout the letter. We saw the moment, the historical situation. We saw the messenger, the author of Galatians, the Apostle Paul. We saw the message of Galatians, that being the gospel. And remember, this was most likely written to the southern Galatian churches in the Roman political province of Galatia. Paul had visited several cities and established churches in his first missionary journey. And so this is coming on the heels of that first missionary journey when Paul remarks that they are quickly turning away. And so we believe that this letter is the earliest that Paul has written, if not the earliest in all of the New Testament, written about 46 to 48 A.D. And because the gospel is under attack, Paul knows that he has to defend the gospel at himself. And we saw again from those first five verses some rough outlines of the gospel about the death and resurrection of Jesus, the rescue and deliverance by Jesus, and the grace and peace that comes through the gospel. Well, last week, as we looked at the next five verses, we saw and explored the one and only gospel. And we saw a framework to help us understand and apply not only that five verses, but the whole letter. Because we saw the problem of turning from the true gospel when coming under the influence of false teachers. And so that framework was this, the gospel will be distorted and the gospel must be defended. Indeed, that is true in the first century. It's certainly true in the 21st century. This gospel is completely and absolutely unique. And as such, our very lives depend on the genuine gospel. Thus, it's not surprising for Paul's rhetoric and his tone. Read that again, 6 through 10. Look at the urgency. Look at the intensity. And look at the indignancy. Paul is... Is, is telling the church then and now, God is telling the church then and now, with, when it comes to the gospel, accept no substitutes, embrace no imitations, and tolerate no distortions. Now, to move into our text for this morning, I want to, first of all, address a fear that I believe many of us may have. I've had it. I probably still have it to a degree, and I'm sure I will have it down the road. It's the fear of being accused of being a flip-flopper. Now, I don't mean flip-flops, of course, that you wear on your feet. I mean changing your position, changing what you believe. Um, In in England, they don't call it flip-flopping, they call it a U-turn. You're, you're holding one position, and now you're holding another position. You're going one way, and then turning around. And as elections get closer, the time for elections in, in the U.S. in particular, you know the accusations. He's a flip-flopper. She's a flip-flopper. She had this position. Now she's changing it just for political purposes. We've all heard that. But none of us want to be accused of that either, or do we? Well, what we have in our text today, I believe, is one of the major flip-flops that we have in all of Scripture. What we have in our text today is a testimony of a radical change 
of life. A radical change of life. Today, once again, we're going to be exposed to the message of the gospel and the messenger of the gospel. Now, since the gospel is a message not only for the unbeliever, but also for the believer, it will do us good, much good, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, to quote a few memorable words from the Book of Common Prayer, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this portion of God's Word. Join with me now as I read verses 11 through 24 of Mark, excuse me, of Galatians chapter 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And I was still unknown in person to the churches in Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. In verses 11 and 12, we have the message of the gospel. The defense of the message that Paul proclaims. Already in his letter, he's been defending his apostleship. Now he will defend the message that he's been proclaiming. And in responding to accusations, Paul asserts the divine origin of the apostolic gospel. Now notice he begins with a triple negation of what the gospel is not. Here we have an instance of, as it were, negative theology. Negative theology. Uh, Did you all know that in Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer four, you have a great example of negative theology? It asks the question, what is God? God is a spirit, right? Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, right? God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In other words, God is not finite. He is, he um, doesn't end. He um, doesn't change. Because the only way you can actually say something, in this case, about God, is to say what he's not. 
He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And in a similar related way, Paul is describing the gospel. It's not man's gospel. He did not receive it from any man, nor was he taught it by man. It's a triple negation. It's not man's gospel. Why is that important for Paul to say? Because if it was of man or from man, then it could be ignored. It could be resisted. I mean, let's face it. Sometimes you, uh, you hear something from somebody and they ask you to do something and you just, who are you? I, I don't want to do what you just asked me to do. But if it's from God, as Paul is asserting, then it has authority. Irresistible authority. It will be resisted, but to the point of someone's peril. Paul is at pains to say it is not man's gospel. But his gospel instead was received by revelation. Paul is not claiming that he's got the right view, the right opinion, but he's rather declaring that the view he has has been given to him by God. Paul is obviously responding here to the accusations that we don't know at this point from the false teachers who are, who are attacking the man, not only distorting the message, but attacking Paul, the, 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 the apostle who traveled through this region to preach the gospel, to establish churches. Paul says it's not man's gospel. It wasn't rather something that I achieved, but rather something that I received by revelation. Indeed, we should stop and think that here is a great example of a description of the gospel being a word from the outside. It's not an invention. It's not tradition. It is revelation. It's something that once was hidden, but is now revealed. It was unknown, but now it's been made known by God. I think just these very few words about Paul, that Paul has about the gospel help us to remember that salvation is not found in us. It rather comes from outside of us. And children, just as pronouns are important, just as verb tenses are important, prepositions are important. We don't look in for rescue. We call out for rescue, just as blind Bartimaeus did on the road. Here, Paul declares both where the gospel comes from, it comes from God, and how the gospel comes to us. It comes by revelation. As he turns to talk about himself, he will declare what the gospel does when it comes to someone. See, he's, he's already talked about where does the gospel come from and how does it come to us and now he's going to talk about what the gospel does when it comes. In a word, it changes them. Receiving and believing the gospel results in a radical change of life. It's interesting, as I've been thinking about this, Paul is going to write a lot of doctrinal stuff. I mean, you look at Romans, you look at Ephesians, you look at Colossians. Here in Galatians, you've got that, but you've also got Paul's personal testimony weaving through this. So that for Paul, the gospel is not something just out there, but it's something that has come into his own life. And we will see that more and more. 
So let's look now at verses 13 through 24. Um, the messenger of the gospel. Um, look how verse 13 starts. For, for, for you have heard. In other words, these verses 13 through 24 are all going to go back and support Paul's description of the gospel. His testimony, we will see, is not to draw attention to him, but it's just to demonstrate God's calling on his life. So let's take a look, first of all, at verses 13 and 14. Um, Paul's former life, what happened before his conversion. Notice in our text, we see Paul is fully committed to a violent persecution of the church of God. Paul describes himself as violent, fanatical, and obsessed. I was talking with someone the other day uh, about coming to faith in Christ, and he said, um, i got to be all in. I can't do this halfway. It's got to be all or nothing. In other words, he's counting the cost, and he wanted to be committed. He wants to be committed. Paul is fully committed to a violent persecution of the church. He's totally devoted. Notice this language. Extremely zealous to the traditions of his fathers. In Philippians 3, he speaks at length about the arrogant pride that we just sang about in his own life. Faultless, blameless, to a T, he carried on the traditions of his fathers. He was finding security in that. He is not proud of his past, but he's up front. And here he's preempting claim by his critics that he might be a hypocrite. Paul, then known as Saul, is the least likely to be an advocate of Christianity. If there was a, a yearbook for, uh, what is he, studied under Gamaliel, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, right? In the superlatives, right? Most likely to succeed, most likely to do this. Paul would not be most likely to become a Christian, most likely to become a church planter. He's the least likely. Look at his mental and emotional state. He is not likely to change his mind, nor is he likely to have it changed by someone else. His thinking will not evolve. As we read in Acts chapter 9, it would take an act of God to reach him, and indeed, God did. Here we see Paul, and in other places, incredibly moral and outwardly righteous. And yet, as he himself would say, he was not good enough to be right with God. But on the other hand, he was incredibly evil. He was seeking to destroy the church, kill people, haul them off to jail, watch their executions. Christianity, as you know, some people saw it as just a sect of Judaism. And the Romans tolerated Christianity until they kept hearing this Jesus is Lord thing, not Jesus is Lord and Caesar is Lord. Paul saw the threat that these Christians were to his faith, his people, his history, and he sought to extinguish it. 
Paul was not in... Just keep in mind, he sought to destroy the church. He's incredibly evil, but you know, he's not so bad that the gospel of grace could not redeem him. Paul is going to argue many times that that the uh, gospel calls us out of outward religion as much as it calls us out of irreligion. Paul was deeply religious, but he needed the gospel. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Discipline of Grace, that the men of the church have studied in the past, and we probably should do it again, speaks of the fact that no one is so good that they are beyond the need of the gospel. And no one is so bad that they're beyond the reach of the gospel. And we see this in Paul's life. So what happened before his conversion? Paul was single-mindedly devoted to the destruction of the church. But what happened at his conversion? The change, and we see that in verses 15 and the first part of 16. And notice, interestingly, the change from the first person. He's been talking about I. And now there's a third person, he, but God. Well, what happened to Paul? Three things. First, he was set apart before birth. You need a proof text for predestination? Here's another one. Set apart before birth. And it's a clever phrase Paul Paul is using because the Pharisees considered themselves set apart because they kept God's law. So Paul, what happened to him? He was set apart before birth. And secondly, he was called by grace. Now, is that an accurate statement? Look closely with me at the end of verse 15. And who called me by his grace. Here are those pronouns are again. Called me, Paul says, by his grace. And thirdly, what happened to Paul? Jesus Christ was revealed to him. Blind Bartimaeus had heard of Jesus, called out to Jesus. He was looking. He was searching for someone to cure his blindness. Paul, on the other hand, was blinded in his encounter with Jesus. Paul changed from the inside out, not just historical and factual, but also spiritual and personal. Again, here's clear example that direct intervention of God is required to change someone's heart. Why conversion? Why was Paul converted? Big picture, look with me. It pleased God. God was pleased to reveal His Son to me. It's the first verb in the Greek in this section. God was pleased. It goes back to Deuteronomy 7, doesn't it? God says, I love you because I chose you. I love you because I love you. It's not because you were big, fancy, worthy, merited. I love you because I love you. It pleased God. Why was Paul converted? It pleased God. But secondly, there is a specific reason to preach his son, Jesus Christ, to the Gentiles. 
Peter would go off to preach to the Jews and Paul would be the apostle to the Gentiles, the Greeks, the pagans. Here's private revelation given to Paul for public communication of the gospel. God revealed Christ to Paul so that Paul could reveal Christ to people. Here's God's prenatal choice leading to his call in history. Mercy found Saul. Grace called him. Paul not only stopped persecuting Christians, it would be enough, right? I mean, in other words, just stop doing that, Paul. No, not only that, but now he's promoting Christ and Christianity by preaching. He goes from being a persecutor to a promoter. From someone who was trying to destroy to someone who was trying to build up. This is Paul's conversion. It's unique. There's only one like it. It's got its own DNA, its own fingerprints. All are unique, and yet they all have the same storyline, don't they? Sometimes they're sudden, sometimes they're gradual. We pray that many children growing up in this church can honestly, with a sincere heart, look back on their life and say, by God's kindness and mercy, there was never enough a time that I did not trust in Jesus for salvation from sin. But every believer can articulate something about what I once was and what I now am or what I would have been apart from God's saving grace. So what happened after his conversion? Let's look at his new life. What we have in verses 16 through 22 is a travelogue, a mini um, description of where he went and what he did. And if you wanted to read a lot of pages, you could read what scholars and theologians are trying to do as they bring Acts and the epistles together to find out where Paul was and what he did. Um, Luke in Acts may say that Paul did this, but he doesn't say, for instance, like how much time elapsed between events. And so here's kind of a filling in of the gaps. But what Paul is doing in talking about where he went and what he did is to provide three alibis to prove that he didn't spend time initially in Jerusalem where he, where he could have learned the gospel from others because it's important for Paul to defend his direct apostleship from God. Paul is unknown in person, we read, to the churches in Judea. And he takes an oath before God. He is anxious to affirm the accuracy of his testimony before God. And as a pious, devout Jew, he would have understood the seriousness of what he said. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. He would have understood the penalty for falsehood and the penalty for lie. And notice, after Paul describes his travels, he also describes the people's response in verses 23 through 24. People heard that the persecutor of the faith and the gospel had become the preacher of the faith and the gospel. And they glorified God because of Paul. They glorified God because of Paul. Ask yourself silently, quietly to yourself sometime, 
Are people glorifying God because of who I am? Does my life reflect anything about the truth of the gospel? That I'm a miserable sinner and Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. Can people glorify God when they see our life? Paul is saying this not to boast or brag. He'll only later say, I'm boasting in the cross alone. He's saying this because it's just true. People are glorifying God because of a changed life. Here in the first chapter of Galatians, Paul is defending himself in order to defend the gospel. So let's let's wrap up here. Once again, the gospel is a message not from man, but from God. And it's not man's good news about God, but rather God's good news for man. Paul proves his point through a description of his former life and a description of the divine initiative and action in his conversion. There's always been a temptation to drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul, and it's been quite fashionable at times. Thomas Jefferson who had his own Bible where he cut out the parts he didn't like, says this of Paul. He's the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. And many since then have said, it's Jesus I like, but I don't like this Paul. My friends, Jesus and Paul are preaching the same gospel. If Paul was right to assert that his gospel was not man's but God's, then to reject Paul is to reject the gospel, and to reject the gospel is to reject God. Paul, in these verses, gets personal in order to help make the gospel clear, not to draw attention to himself. He shares his testimony because he believes it will help people find Christ. He is focused on serving his hearers, not using them. To boast, to boost his own ego. All of us have a testimony. All of us have been in situations where people have asked us, why are you different? Um, What is the hope? Why are you not phased by this? Is what you share designed to make Jesus look good? Or is what you're sharing designed to make you look good? And finally, not only is the gospel good news, but the Christian life is a radical change of life. Radical in its original Latin meaning. Forming the root. Radical means forming the root at the core. When on the road to Damascus, Paul encountered the risen Christ and received the gospel... He was changed at the very core of his being, at the roots. And because he was changed at the roots, new and different fruit began to be produced. The fruit of persecution rotted and was discarded, and the fruit of promotion and preaching started growing. A gospel changed and a gospel changing life is a radical change of life. A life with new roots and now bearing new fruit. It is a life that is attractive to those in whom the Lord is at work.
Because the gospel will always be either an aroma of life for those in whom God is at work, or it will be an aroma of death to others. We see in our text that God calls us by His grace, reveals to us His Son, and then sets us apart for His service. May grace and peace be filled with people who hear the call of grace, who see the revelation of Jesus Christ in the gospel, and then having been set apart for God's service, are eager to serve. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this testimony of your grace and mercy in the life of the Apostle Paul. And we thank you, Father, that he is sharing this not to build himself up, but rather to um, build your church up. And so, Father, may we indeed be a people who have open ears to hear the call of grace, to have open eyes to see Jesus Christ made known in the gospel. And Father, may we have strong hands and strong feet that are eager and equipped to serve, knowing that we have been set apart for your service. Have your way with us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel.